So we're in Romans, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and on. And I'm going to jump back. Uh, there was something I was going to share last week, and then I hesitated because I wanted to do a little more checking. And there's one thing we're going to finish up on Paul's statement. And if you recall, in verse uh, 17, it says, For in it the righteousness. And uh, I believe more and more that uh, Doug Bookman's probably got uh, uh, a good beat on that, that is talking about the, the righteous character of God is on display. And how is that on display? Well, it says that it's revealed, and that word is uh, actually uh, uh, constantly revealed. Uh, if you have a MacArthur Bible, you'll see that in his notes. Same when you get down to verse 18, the wrath of God constantly revealed. It's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time thing. But it's constantly revealed from faith, and then we took the NIV uh, uh, wording there, from faith from first to last. And uh, I believe what that's talking about is, well, let's look at Isaiah first. And Pastor's going to be getting into this, so if I'm wrong on this, he'll have every opportunity to correct me. Um, Chapter 46 in Isaiah, I'm going to read. You can listen if you want, rather than turn there. But in chapter 46, verses 12 and 13, it says uh, Isaiah uh, is uh, what what God is saying here. He's, He's dealing with the idea of Baal worship and the idols in Babylon. And he says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And rightfully, I think most would take that and say that's looking at the end times when when, uh, Israel is reestablished and then uh, carried into the kingdom. But as much of prophecy, the Old Testament going forward never saw a church or church age. We have the opportunity of seeing the church age and what's written to us, but also going back and seeing how that ties in. So the old statement, the New Testament and the old is concealed, but the Old Testament in the new is revealed. So we can look back at these statements and we see what Paul is saying And we can put those together and realize that the righteousness of God and salvation is is critically tied together. And and that's a good thing as we read today, as we go through our lesson today. So in Isaiah 51, 5, it says, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and from my arm they wait. And then it goes on, he says, lift up your eyes to heaven, and then we're going to go down to the end of verse 6, and it says, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. He's addressing the Jews. And then he goes on the end, he says, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations, to all generations. Now, we can look back and see more clearly what that means than what the prophet Isaiah would have known or the Jewish people. So then we get into Romans, and he's putting this emphasis on righteousness. Now, Romans was written 57 A.D. So we're talking, going back to Isaiah, we're talking at least 750, closer to 800 years that has passed. And this Roman church of primarily Gentiles... But some Jews, uh, I think there's an issue that, that Paul is addressing here. So he says, For in it the righteousness 
that righteous character of God is revealed. And how is it revealed? It's revealed in faith. From first to the last. It's revealed here. Now, there's other ways that God's righteousness is revealed, and we're going to see that today. But it's revealed, he's saying here, in the salvation of mankind. Going back, clear back to the Garden of Eden, to, we can look at it today and say to today, God's glorious, righteous character is revealed in our salvation. That's just a, that's a wonderful thought. That's a thought that should kind of grip us and uh, bring us to a, a, a realization. So we're seeing here that the whole thing of the righteous character of God is on display. It's revealed constantly in salvation. And uh, now we're going to go forward. And how has God's revealed righteousness been? Now he's going to reveal his wrath. And it's not anger, but it's, it's a... Uh, man's condition needs to be realized, and the old saying that you, you need to get lost before you get saved is true. In other words, we as, as human beings, and when we witness to people, we're going to see that God has revealed himself to every man and all mankind throughout the whole world, and we're going to talk about that. But the need of man is to submit to God's righteousness and submit to the realization that he's lost outside of God. And we're going to see today how men, how men forsake that and how they, uh, they twist that. So we're going to try and get through uh, chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way through chapter 2 and 11. And what we're talking about here is the wrath of God and how the wrath of God is, is uh, revealed. So God's wrath... Let's read the first uh, two verses, three verses here, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed, again, constantly revealed, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, that's a statement that's so key for us to understand, because we're going we're gonna to get into some things that is real hard for man to accept or understand, but they're true, because God says them here. They suppress the truth. Now, you can't suppress something that you didn't know about. Right? I see heads nodding, so I'm, I'm assuming you agree with me. You can't suppress something that you don't know about. So when he says that all men suppress the truth, he's saying they have knowledge of the truth in some form. And we're going to see that today. For what can be known about God is plain to them. There we go. They're suppressing what's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, what are they? Well, he names two here. His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So we're talking about here the condition of man. Now, it's, it's just interesting that Paul spends those, those two uh, remarkable verses, 16 and 17, which are transitional in this book, and he spends that time on those two, books that, uh, two verses that we tried to unpack. There's definitely people could do a better job than I do on that, and go through what those words mean and how they mesh together and all the interworkings of, uh, of the things of God that equal and come to his salvation of mankind. 
And they're all working together. And he, he, gives the, he gives the Roman church, remember, he's writing to a church here. He's writing to a group of people just like us. So Romans was written to the Roman church. It's written to us also. And he, he gets those two verses. And then he goes from there. He says, for the wrath of God. And this is something that they ha- should have an understanding of. Because these people, for the most part, we would say, the Gentiles and Jews there, as far as we know, they're saved. They're saved. They've realized God's mercy. They've accepted God's righteousness and salvation by faith. It says the wrath of God is revealed against them. So how would you define the wrath of God? Now, the one thing I already said is it's not anger, because that's an emotion. So what's the wrath of God? Somebody have a thought on that? Okay, righteous punishment, good. Anybody else? The wrath of God. Well, here, I've got this. God's holy aversion to all that is evil. But it's precise and it's controlled. It's a precise and controlled response that is, uh, is, is issued because of a disregard for his holiness. So that would fit. God's holy aversion to all that is evil. And yet his wrath is not an emotion where you snap and get mad, like we've probably all done, and like I've done Wayne too many times uh, years ago. And you snap and you get mad, and, and the, the issue here is it's, it's, a, it's an aversion to evil that's controlled and precise because of something that goes against God's holiness. So let's look at, let's look at uh, two things here in this section. Uh, revealed. How is it revealed? He says his wrath is revealed. Well, I have three ways that I, that I can come up with of, of how it's revealed. One, it's revealed in his word, both in the Old and New Testament. And uh, John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And then it talks about, He that does not believe, the wrath of God abideth on him. So if you're here today and you're not saved, you're outside of, you have not received Jesus Christ, John 1.12, as your Savior, you have not done that, the wrath of God abides on you. It abides on you. Now you say, well, how is it abiding on me? Well, it may not, God, God's payday isn't always on Friday. It may not be something you say, well, right now life's going pretty good for me. Well, thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord for that and accept his offer of salvation. But how? How are the ways that, that God has revealed that? How, how, what's, where are some incidents in the Bible where you see the wrath of God? There's a couple of obvious ones. Yes. The flood. Ben. Sodom and Gomorrah. You have, uh, you have Korah. You know, when he rebelled and his family rebelled against uh, Moses coming down from the mountain, and God just opened up and swallowed him up. You know, there's, we look at all those dynamic ones, but there's others. What about in the early church? What happened to, An- oh, go ahead, Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the Holy Spirit, and I understand them to be believers, but they lied to the Holy Spirit of God, and God judged them for it. Why? His judgments are put there for us as mankind to realize our need. It should put a certain fear, a reverential trust in God, a fear in us that, okay, I want to be careful 
and what we do. And we said in the first lesson how faith and obedience work together. There's an example right there. Faith and obedience have to... Have to if, you're, if you've trusted Jesus Christ and you've by faith accepted him, there should be examples in your life of obedience. And you know, when we get saved, God has no use for us on this earth unless we serve him. And sometimes the wrath of God abides there. Now, it's not for us to judge each incident and say, well, that guy, he must have, God took him early. No. But that's the reality of God's wrath. It's revealed. It's also revealed in, in a historical fact. That's the cross of Calvary. And uh, the issue here is the cross of Calvary is God's wrath is revealed in a manner that should bring repentance to, uh, in our lives. And if you're saved, it has. In Romans 5.9, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood. Remember justified and righteousness. Uh, they're hand in hand. It's actually the same root word in the Greek, justified and righteousness. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So as saved people, now does that mean things don't happen to us, like with Cheryl Turbot, you know, having a, a potentially a disastrous cancer? No. Things are going to happen to us, but we're saved from the wrath of God, and the ultimate wrath of God is, of course, hell, and we're saved from that. So the other thing is that in the natural world, now I want some help here. How is God's wrath shown around us in the natural world? What are some ways that, that you might think? Yeah, Wayne. Just some of the calamities that occur, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, um, volcanoes. Drought. And drought. And drought. Yeah, God's wrath is shown in the natural world. Now that's important for us to understand because now we're going to go into three areas. Well, first of all, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Suppress truth, verses 19 and 20. We read that. You read that with an emphasis, and you see the suppression of the truth is what? For what can be known about God is plain to them. That's everybody. That's, and he's using the plural pronouns here. That'll change a little later. Plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it? Well, he goes on to say he's shown it through nature. So, Natural revelation is there. Now, is natural revelation um, have a limited purpose? Does it have a limited purpose, natural revelation? Can you get saved through natural revelation? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So no, you can't. But God reveals himself, and we've probably all heard cases on the mission field, and the one that really stuck with me is Norris and Linda Bailey when they were still going to Burma, which is now, is it Minar? I believe the country is. Um, but, um, by Myanmar, isn't it? Um, anyway, when, when uh, he went up into a mountain, they had to climb, him and another gentleman, a translator, and they sit outside the village and they wait for people to come out. You don't walk into the village or you might get killed. And this old man came out and sat down, and they were sharing with him the gospel. And he said to the translator that he knew there was a God. And he'd been waiting for this his whole life. Now, he didn't know exactly what he was waiting for, but he knew there was a God. And my point is that when people do that, I believe God sends, he's sovereign over everything. God sends them 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. But he was relying on natural revelation to realize, you know what? Uh, there, there's a God. There's, there's a God or there's something out there, somebody out there that's brought this about. And he understood that. And that's what Paul is telling these people. They've been de- clearly received ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So even in natural revelation, there's no longer any excuse. Why do you think these missionaries, as they follow God's leading, end up in all these different countries? God puts them there for a reason. Why? Because there are people there. And there's probably people there who have accepted something in natural revelation, but they haven't heard the word of God yet. It's just a marvelous thought. And we kind of limit God because we like to limit ourselves. And God's not limited. And in Acts 17, that's the same thing uh, at uh, Ariagopolis, uh, Mars Hill, where Paul was, uh, was uh, in a discussion with the wise men of the area, as at Athens in Greece. And he's in this discussion, and he sees all these idols, all these gods, and there's one that was what? The unknown God. The unknown God. And Paul says... We know him. How? And he goes about and he describes, it's in Acts 17, you can read that, 22 through 34, but he describes the matter of creation. God's revealed himself to all mankind. So he said, that unknown God is the true God of heaven that you need to receive. And he goes about with the whole issue of natural revelation in that that scripture. So the intellectuals, and that's part of the problem is, we get so wise that we, we can't accept God in humility because we want to accept man's devices. So let's take a quick look here. And these next ones, we're going to see three things in Romans 1, 21 through 32. I'm just going to read the first two verses a little bit. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So they're talking about a creation here that God has sovereignly planted evidence of himself in creation. We just just saw that. And the creator, the creation, delivers a clear uh, message of who God is. And now he's going on to talk to them about what they've done with it. And what's the key word there in verse 23? Second word. Does everybody's uh, Bible say exchanged? Is there anybody else got a different word there? They ex- I, I didn't think so. I went through, I think, six different translations, and I didn't see anything else. But exchanged, they exchanged. Now, what does it mean to exchange? My dad told a story about his uncle one time that bought this thoroughbred racehorse. He paid a lot of money for it. He even borrowed some money from dad, my dad's dad, my grandpa, to buy this racehorse. He gets the racehorse home, and they find out it's not really any good. So he traded it for two cows. Well, he didn't milk cows, but he got two cows back for it. So he traded to my grandpa the two cows for some geese and ducks. Now, he started out with a racehorse of value. He ended up with some de- geese and ducks. So was that a good trade? <laughs> No, we look at that, and that's exactly what's happened here with mankind. They've exchanged God's knowledge given to them in natural creation 
for something else. What do they exchange it for? Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And he's going to go through a myriad list here of things that we're going to just, uh, just kind of glean over. But the issue here is, and he, you know, some, some uh, would characterize these things as, okay, he's talking just to the Gentiles. Well, we know he's talking to the church. And we know he's talking to all men. And he ends up in verse 17 of chapter 2, and he says Gentiles and men and Gentiles and, and Jews. But many of these things, the, Gentile, the Jews of the first century during this time were not idol worshipers in the, as far as having the idols of uh, uh, created things and stuff like that like he's talking about here. They weren't idol worshipers. Now, they might be idol worshipers from the standpoint of the law because they rejected Jesus Christ and stuck with the law. So that might be a legitimate argument, but that's something we'll, we'll look at probably next week or the week after. But in general, they're not idol worshipers. They're also, the Jews were very staunch on the issue of morality. And the issue of, of, of especially such things as homosexuality and so on, that was not part of the Jewish custom. It was very much part of the, of the Gentile. So Paul goes on here, and what he's addressing here, and then in chapter 2 we see a, we see a change, so nobody's going to escape his uh, conversation here. Therefore, because of these idols, God gave them up. To what? Lust of the heart, impurities, dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they, what? Exchanged the truth. There's a second time, we're going to see a third time, that word exchange is used. We also have three times where God gave them up. And it goes on in verse 26, well, in verse 25, let's look at that. Exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the issue here. Creature rather than the creator. Do we do that? I, I, I know there's, there's things that I really like to hold on to that really don't have any value except to me. Does that hinder us? Do we hold on to things, uh, you know, uh, what they say the average lifetime in a house is like five years for people now? Well, do we hold on to things because we want bigger and better? So we keep moving in that direction and we tie ourselves up so that we're limited in what we can do, at least financially, for the cause of Christ. We have to, we have to understand that, you know, we're in this too. This is not just to the Roman church. And it's a good thing sometimes to go back and relook your life and see where your priorities have been and how they, how they uh, actually live out in our life and what we like to hold on to. But I'll tell you what, I know for me, uh, I look at some of the moves we've had and I look back at them and I say, you know what? God removed some obstacles. Through that, God removes some obstacles through that. Now that's me. I'm not saying that's you, but it's good for all of us to take a look at where we were before Christ, and He's definitely given them that report here, and where you are after Christ, and what does that mean, and how you live your life out. So He goes on in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. So He already gave them up once because of idolatry. Now He gave them up again because of sexual impurity. But he talks about dishonorable passions. And now we get into the, the exchange. There's the third time that word is used. They exchange natural relations. 
So what they were doing earlier was definitely immoral. Well, now they're stepping in the, in the, to the vibe of amoral, where they just, there's, there's, no, there's no consciousness of uh, decency. And it's contrary to nature, the end of verse 16. And men and women, and the, the, the words men and women are the Greek word is very distinct uh, that uh, Paul is talking about the difference between men and women. There's a, there's a distinct difference that's being dishonored in how they're behaving. And then he goes on, these shameless acts with, with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. So God says there's a penalty there. Now, we can look in the common world and we can see AIDS and things like that uh, that have taken place. And I, I absolutely believe that that's part of God's judgment because, you know, it didn't just show up on its own. Uh, God had a purpose in it. But the reality is, this is going on for years. This is going on, you know, 2,000 years ago. And how did that show itself? Well, in many different ways that we won't get into. You guys can, uh, you folks can look that up yourself if you want to. But there's a penalty for their error. So in verse 28, he says again, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. A third time, to a debased mind. So what's he talking about here? Well, to me, uh, the giving up, there's a consequences for our actions. And depraved sexual uh, activity is going to bring a consequence. And we can all look in our own lives and see, uh, pastors talked about the fact that we're all guilty, uh, for instance, of adultery. Not only, but it's, it's, you know, the old thought, word, and deed. If I think about it, it's known to me. If I talk about it, it's known to the people around me. If I decide to do it and become active in that, it can be known to a whole community or far beyond that. So we've all been guilty of it in some form, and we should understand that because as we deal with other people, as we try to bring people to Christ, we don't want to judge them as unfit because they're no more unfit than we were. Absolutely not. So there's a, there's a, there's a consequences of sin. There's also a consequences when that verse 26, it gives them up to unnatural desires and homosexuality. And to me, we're talking here, now we get in the area of a sin with a high hand where we're shaking our fist at God and saying, you're wrong. There's no regard or concern for what's right or for what God deems is right. There's no regard for that. Now, how is that being, how is that being played out today in our world? To me, I've said this from the beginning, the ultimate shaking your fist at God is people who want to change their what? Gender. Gender. Just think of that. Think of that. And think what parents are doing to their kids. And we got a grandson that's nine years old. And there's times, you know, he's, he's a boy. There's no doubt he's a boy. But there's times where he'll act a little bit. And uh, unfortunately, he's got uh, an uncle that's passed away who was homosexual, so his dad gets nervous about that. We don't want any of this feminine. But the reality is, kids are going to act that way. But when the parents take that action and say, oh, we've got we to go to the doctor about this, and then want to change his gender, you talk about shaking your fist at God and saying, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. You made me the wrong gender. 
And you think about what, that, what that's doing. And he goes on into verses 28 through 32, the debased mind. What's that? Lacking any moral sense. It's an unconcern with what's right or wrong. Totally unconcerned. That's a debased mind. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, what did he say in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians? Anybody have that from memory? That's been a long time since uh, when I taught through 1 Corinthians. But that same list of sins. Now, the first set of sins there, the first two sets, uh, the Jews can look and say, oh, that's, that's, the, that's those barbaric Gentiles. But you know what? You get to 28 through 32, those are general enough that they get applied to everybody. So the Jew can't point that finger. But when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, there he's writing to a church that had a lot of trouble. And he went through that same list of sins. A little shorter, but covered the same territory. And what did he end that with? He said, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Whatever level of sin that you've, you've, you've uh, brought into your life, and even debased sin, when God comes to you with the gospel, you can respond. And respond fully realizing God will save you. Just like the Corinthians. That was another Gentile church that just, you know, in my mind, it's worse than the Roman church. What was going on there. But he said, such were some of you. That's past. So at the end there uh, of uh, chapter 1, he, he closes that they knew the righteousness of God and they still chose to have a debased mind. So we've dealt with the immoral person. We've dealt with the amoral person. And now in chapter 2, we're going to see a little change. Let's read these first uh, couple of verses. It says, therefore, you... Now, what was he saying back here in chapter 1? What pronoun is he using a lot? Them. 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 Now he's pointing his finger in a, in a more singular fashion, saying you. And most commentators, and I, and I kind of agree with this, not totally the way some of them take it, but um, he's talking to the Jews. Because he's... he's He's dealt with these Gentile issues that are common, and everybody knows about, and the Jews were not partakers of. The problem was sometimes the Jews would point their finger across, hey, you barbarians, you were involved with all that kind of stuff, homosexuality and all that. We don't do that. There was this pride that was there. And he's going to deal with that because he says uh, four times in the first verse, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, that general category of sexual impurity that comes from idolatry, and idolatry can be in a lot of different forms than just what the, what the uh, Gentiles were, were probably doing, including in the church here, it could be the idolatry of holding onto the law and trying to beat the Gentiles with the law. That's, that's a possibility. I think that's a real possibility as we go on. But here he said, you are judging your own self guilty. We know in verse 2 that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
And he goes on to you, O man. Those first five verses, it's very clear uh, the fact that they will not escape in verse 3. And uh, on verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And the Jews in the Old Testament, uh, how often did they fall into sin? Now, they were, they're God's chosen people. So God always kept a remnant. But as, as that took place, the Jews would fall into some form of sin, and God would bring judgment, and what would they do? Uh, with Moses for 40 years. They'd come to repent, and God would forgive them. They're relying on the kindness and, the, and, the, and, and, and God's uh, uh, patience with them. And, they, and he's saying here, maybe that's what you're presuming on. But it's different now. The church here, the, the, the church is, at this time is only, at the most, 25 years old. And he's saying, you can't presume on that anymore. Because using that judgment on others, you're pointing the fingers back. It's the old thing, you point one to me, you got four pointing back at you. My thumb doesn't turn that way anymore. But um, Anyway, that's, that's what he's talking about here. Now, this language that's used there and what he's dealing with now, pastor, I think, did he reference uh, in his sermon, was it the Wisdom of Solomon, the apocryphal book? I think it was. Anybody else remember for sure? Anyway, he, he, uh, he, uh, uh, he referred to that apocryphal book, I think, the Wisdom of Solomon. If, if you look at the Wisdom of Solomon, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, they go through the same things. And it's an apocryphal book. It was, it was in the 400 years where there was no communication with God, the intertestamental period that it was written. But their description of the Gentiles falls right in place. The idolatry, the sexual impurity, uh, doing things that were just horrific. You know, the homosexuality, all these things that, that are combined there. And he's pointing, and we're all Gentiles, by the way. And in the apocryphal book, that's being pointed out as, uh, as a problem. And understanding that you don't do such things. And that's the same thing he's, I think, referencing here. So he ends this up with the idea that because because of your hard and impenitent heart, verse 5, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So when we sit in judgment of others, and boy, we're capable of doing that, um, when we sit in judgment of others and look at them and kind of discredit them and talk them down, we gossip. That was one of the sins in uh, verses 28 through 32. We gossip about that and appoint it to fingers. What we're doing is we're building up wrath for ourselves in judgment. Now, we're not going to go to hell. And I don't know what the judgment in heaven is going to look like. But I know there's going to be some tears until God wipes them away. And the fact that there's wrath being built up, and he's warning, I believe, the Jews about that. And now we go back, I think, to the more of the, 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 reg, the including Jews and Gentiles, because he says, God, or he, in verse 6, will render to each one according to his works. So in this segment, he's addressing these Jews and Gentiles, and as I would understand it, he's addressing them as what they were. And I think he's the warning is don't, don't revert back to that. Don't revert back to any of that in your life because there's going to be the wrath of God 
There's going to be judgment if you do. You're saved. You're set aside to be holy. You're to be sanctified. That's supposed to be a part of your life that continues to go on in life. You should not have these issues, and you definitely shouldn't have these issues in the church between people. They should be rectified. Why? He goes on, he says, verse 9, there will be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. Now, I think the Jew first here is referencing the fact that all through the Old Testament, the Jews had the law of God. They had the word of God through the Old Testament. So he's talking in general terms, the Jewish nation. Because then he says again, but glory and honor, verse 10, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then God shows no partiality. So what does this mean for us? The need for all mankind to recognize that their lost condition, or we recognize that we were lost, and we don't have some kind of a spiritual, uh, spiritual judgment on mankind, on others. I'll tell you what, you know, I think about, it can be real hard uh, sometimes, uh, I've thought about this myself, if I meet somebody that's a homosexual and shake his hand, and I've I got to confess, that can be hard for me to do sometimes. You know, that thought is there, oh, you know. But the reality is, we have to, why? Because God shows no partiality in judgment, but he also shows no partiality in salvation. Salvation is for everyone. And now we, we had this whole issue, and it's, it's fairly prominent around here because of uh, um, the, the Mayo Clinic and their position on this, but the whole transsexual issue. How do we deal with that? Do we shake their hand? Do we welcome them? Yes. Yes, we have to set aside our judgmental minds and be sure that we are displaying God's righteousness to them because God's righteousness has been put in us through salvation, faith, first to last. He's given us his righteousness. And I'll tell you what, that goes back to my whole position, and I understand not everybody's going to agree, and that's fine, but faith and obedience if we're going to tell people that we have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, then we better be exercising obedience to show it, or it means nothing. What you do is going to always trump what you say. How do you live it out in your life? None of us live it perfect. We know that. But I think that's what Paul is dealing with here. And now next, he's going to deal with the issue of God's judgment and the law. And that will be our next, uh, uh, next lesson. So God's wrath has exercised against immoral, amoral, and moral man. They're all in the same boat. And as much as they like to set, separate their, their positions and segregate themselves and say, well, I'm not like that. Oh, I've never done anything that bad. Yeah, you have. In God's eyes, we're all the same. So we need to, not, we need to be sure that we are impartial just as God is impartial. Okay, we'll close there. Thank you.